Hello and welcome back to, uh, to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. I'm really excited to bring you this uh, episode. I, am ha I have an opportunity to sit down with my old friend, Keith Richards. Uh, Keith and I used to teach use of force together to uh, local community college students focusing on uh, verbal de-escalation, officer safety tactics, and sort of helping them navigate the complexities, if you will, of a life in law enforcement. Uh, but today we are we are sitting with Keith to unpack his 31-year career, and uh, he's been gracious enough to give us his time. And so I welcome you, Keith, um, to my podcast and uh, at the same time to my video channel. So thank you for being with me. My pleasure. So as a way of introduction, just so I let everybody know, uh, Sergeant Keith uh, Richard served as a police officer for 31 years with Durham Regional Police. And for my listeners that are not in Canada, that's um, a regional uh, police service in Southern Ontario, uh, just outside of Toronto. And he's recently begun the next chapter of his life, which is life in retirement. So he graduated from Ontario Police College back in 1990. And over the course of 31 years, worked in several units, including the community resource unit and the constable recruiting unit. Uh, Keith has always been an active member of his local community. He's been a volunteer wrestling and football coach at local high schools, and he's been the board of he's been on the board of directors for Pride Durham, uh, as well as one of the founding members of uh, Durham Pride Prom, which I'm sure Keith will tell us a little bit more about uh, shortly. He was the first diversity coordinator for his service and the lead trainer for their fair and impartial policing program. So welcome, Keith. I'm happy to have you here on Complexity Unpacked. And I hope that uh, you and I can positively contribute to the teaching and learning community. Absolutely. How is retirement treating you so far, my friend? So it's, uh, it's been excellent. Um, you know, it's a bit of an adjustment, uh, you know, being spending three decades in, in a structured environment uh, where most of the rules, regulations are, are laid out for you to now you have to lay out your own rules and I guess essentially regulations uh, to, to manage your life. Uh, so it's been a little different, um, but I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, I'm only a month in, so I don't have a lot of, of seniority on that front. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been excellent. It's been a great journey. And uh, so as I slowly prepare for my, uh, my post police retirement chapter and open up my newer chapter uh, moving forward, it's just been, it's been exciting. Awesome. Well, now that you're on this end, I'm yeah. going to ask that we take you all the way back uh, and hopefully we can unpack in this conversation some of those 31 years and uh, share the perspectives as you experienced them when you went through them. So why don't I start all the way back in the beginning? What were you doing before policing and what brought you to policing? Ah, interesting. Interesting. I'm going to go back further, further than you probably expected. So here's the thing. So I grew up in, in, uh, in a household uh, where uh, police weren't, uh, they were to be avoided. And that's kind of the, the way that my parents fashioned it. I wouldn't say that my parents were anti-police. They just said stay away from them um, because nothing positive can come from uh, being involved in any type of police interaction. So that's how I, you know, started my frame of reference around law enforcement at a very young age. 
Uh, so I'm going to say that, you know, uh, adolescent uh, grade five, you know, nine-year-old kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and, and I will go so far as I remember having a talk with my mother. She had a talk with me and she would say, when you see the police, you see the police, you run. That was her. And I, I never forget. She probably said a whole whack of things. But my takeaway from that is you see the police, you run. I remember that quote like she said it to me yesterday. Um, and, uh, you know, that started framing my reference on how I should treat local law enforcement, right? Not that they're adversaries, but that I should avoid them at all costs. And, and then I had this interesting experience where there were three different officers in the local police uh, division that would constantly just stop me and talk to me. And, I, and, and neither of the three knew the other two were doing this. For whatever reason, they took a, a shine to me and they would literally stop me all the time. I would be on my bike, they stopped me all the time. Now I'm sure to the person walking by, they thought I was being admonished or what have you, but they were just talking to me. And uh, my nickname as a kid was Bubba. And they would say, where are, you, where are you going, Bubba? What are you up to, Bubba? And, and they'd literally just stop on the side of the road and talk to me and then be on their way. And then that transferred from being uh, a kid on his bike to a young man in his first car. And then they were pulling me over. And they would say, where are you heading, Bubba? And they'd be talking to me on the side of the road, look like I'm getting pulled over. And I've never received a ticket. Um, but I'm sure to the person driving by, this kid's in trouble. They were literally just talking to me. And what they did over that, I'm going to say almost a decade, I developed a relationship with these officers and, and a profound one, actually. And so much so that um, I thought at some point I want to emulate them. So park that part. My parents then say to me, guess what? We're moving to Florida. We're going to the U.S. We're moving to Florida. You're welcome to come with us and you're welcome to stay. You know, I had a scholarship for, um, for school, but in a Canadian scholarship, you can't live off that. So I knew I was going to have to go into the world of work because my parents were going. Now, I could have went with them, but that wasn't, a, you know, my whole family, my whole existence was in Canada. So they left to go to Florida. I ended up working at uh, Chrysler, building um, automotive, well, building cars, really, um, for Chrysler. And, you know, lots of great, great money. You know, they paid you very well when you're, when you're in, in automotive. Um, but I hated the job. You know, I just, you're basically essentially a machine. And I knew I could not do this for the rest of my life. And I had a couple of friends that were already police officers. And I never forgot about the impact that those three officers had, had, had done to me. And I promised myself that I would follow up on that. Started studying uh, for the requirements of being a police officer. Started going through the testing. Takes about mm, somewhere between six and eight months to become an officer. And I uh, went through all the testing, went through all the interviews, went through all the, the you know, all the things that are required for you to get employment with the police. And I uh, went through it, passed everything. Went down to the Ontario Police College in 1990, uh, where I started that journey. Um, but I, I can honestly say uh, that the impact of those three officers is far reaching. It didn't just impact me to make me want to be like them. It changed my parents who were the ones that were uh, advocating for me to avoid the police into pro-police. You know, I would go visit them in Florida and they would have support the Tampa police, support the Sarasota police, support this, support that. Don't... I would walk into the house saying, where am I? Right? And they became the, the, the biggest supporters of the police as a result of my experiences. And uh, basically they, they changed everybody in my family from uh, 
looking at police as, as an entity to avoid and being the biggest supporters of the police, all based on the investment that three officers did for a little eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 13-year-old, 16-year-old uh, right. decades before. And, and so, and I always tout that message when I talk to new recruits, because you never know uh, how much that seed investment will prosper into that, that the tree outcomes. And so, and, and, and the biggest thing and the biggest takeaway for something like that is your job is to make the investment, but your job is not to reap the rewards, right? And people have to remember that, right? It's a very selfless, it's a very selfless experience is to say, I'm going to, I'm going to plant those seeds, that investment, but right. I am not going to reap the rewards. Somebody else down the road will reap the rewards of my investment, right? A which is really the, yeah. which is really the essence of a service orientation. Right, yeah. and it's uh, that's that's the funny thing is that's what a lot of young people talk about when they first talk about wanting to get into police. They talk about service. They're wanting to serve their community. So I think that's an excellent example of it. Uh, you've touched already on a, on several key points that I hope we will get to today, uh, yeah. and one of them will be uh, you know this idea of interaction and public interaction with the police and the lasting effect that can have both positive and negative. Yeah. But um, let, let's get to that in a little bit. I'm going to put a pin in that one for now. Uh, take us through. So it's 1990. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you're you're newly hired and you're yes. off to police college, which is a standard procedure here in Canada. Uh, we all our all our municipal services go to one college. Um, right. Yeah. And that's the Ontario Police College in Elmer, Ontario. Uh, talk right. to us about that experience. Uh, maybe you can contextualize that for any police officers listening outside of Canada. Yeah, so the the, uh, the uh, Ontario Police College, one of the largest uh, police training facilities in North America, I believe in terms of size and intake, it's only bested by the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigations uh, because it houses the learning for the entire province. Um, and so uh, you have the Ontario Police College, you go there, it's uh, in Elmer, Ontario, which is uh, essentially uh, Mennonite Amish, Amish country. So there are lots of horse and buggies. Um, but the advantage of it being there is less distraction. Um, pretty much from any part of the campus, there's fields. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're isolated, but at the same time, that's probably a good thing. And so it becomes a self-contained uh, town or entity in itself. It has everything they need in order to prepare you for your next journey as be, being a police officer. You go there, you start learning things of structure, you start learning um, how to do the basic requirements of a constable. Now they do have some challenges at the Ontario Police College because they are working on uh, developing officers for the entire province. And so there are lots of uh, nuances to that because an officer in our Northern part of our province may not need the same requirements as the southern part, right? So you have- right, And options. just, sorry, just to contextualize that last comment, uh, the vast majority of the Canadian population is actually, uh, actually reside uh, within 250 kilometers of the American border. The so border. Uh, yes. we are the largest landmass, but yes. our population density is all concentrated along that uh, long southern border, border. right? So just uh, yeah. some perspective for some yeah. of the listeners. Yeah. Right. And so what happens with that is you might be um, like the Windsor Police or, or Niagara, where you border right onto the U.S. So you have a lot of populace coming across the border that are American populace. And so you need to also learn 
the nuances of the American experience, if you want to properly police that environment, versus somebody that might be up in Timbers or Sault Ste. Marie, where uh, they might have a higher uh, Indigenous population, right? And, right? and what does that look like? What's the context behind policing a larger Indigenous population versus that? So there are all these uh, things that the Ontario Police College has to consider when they're developing a curriculum for their officers. You start going through, you learn how to tactically drive police vehicles, you learn how to do your basic powers of arrest, you start learning general law and that type of thing. Um, probably some things that you, you wouldn't expect to learn um, necessarily, would be, which would be how to negotiate your way through a domestic situation. Right? Well, I think and, that's uh, I think that you're you're bringing up some some valid points, and I think that's interesting because there's a, sometimes there's a preconceived notion that you need a policing or a justice education to get into policing. So that is not the case. Uh, the police will look at people from a, a wide spectrum of uh, society, and they have a, a range of educational and life backgrounds. And so I think that those courses are really important for people coming out uh, or coming into policing from other fields and it's critical that we have that baseline level of knowledge. It's uh, it's also advantageous for those of my students, for example, that come out of justice programs that have some awareness, but you know, those are the technical details that they're focusing in on to get some uniformity, if you will, across the service. Talk to me a little bit about how you felt walking in. Uh, so I, I, I have a sense of what they do, but Keith Richards walks in the door. You're in a remote town. You've described this as a remote town. I'm familiar with it, but yes. um, what's that like? What's so that like? Uh, I, it, it was so just driving there. My first experience in, in, in physically seeing horse and buggies on the side of the road. I still remember my first night there driving. I was driving. I got there in the evening. It was already dark and going around these candle lit, lit buggies to, to get there. I will never forget seeing that. I walk into the police college and I think. I'm here, you know, as though I'm at Mecca or something, you know, and I'm like, I'm at Ontario Police College, right? And, uh, you know, every, and I, you know, and you recognize that everybody from the entire province is here to get what you're getting. And, uh, you know, you start looking back, thinking about that journey that got you there in the first place. You walk into the building and you can immediately, see, you know, you don't necessarily see it, you can sense the structure in the building, if, you know, if that even makes sense. Uh, Everybody's walking, but it's, it's, it, it's like people are, are walking with purpose, right? right? There's no window shopping, right? Somebody's going to A and B, they're going somewhere with purpose. And you can sense that in, in right. their, their, their structure of body language. And you get there, you get your room, room number, all this stuff, and you're in these pods. There's about, I don't know, about 10 people per pod. And so you have a common area in the pod. <clears throat> and then you have your basic room, which is, a bed, a desk, a chair, a window. And uh, they're, they're a little more lax now. When I was there, very structured. So when you were in police college, when you're in your room, your room had to be prepared so that you could, so that any instructor could walk into your room or my room and they couldn't tell the difference. No right. pictures up on, on the walls. Even though they had a cork board wall, couldn't have anything on the cork board wall, unless maybe it was learning notes. Um, you couldn't have any personal effects so that if so-and-so walks into your room, that person can't tell if this is a female's room, a male's room, Neil's room, Kate's room, can't. And so your room is very sanitized. Everything is hidden. And that was part of them developing the structure. Um, you were given two I, blankets, I, two sheets. Can I one part. So you're given two blankets and two sheets. Your, your bed has to be folded on 45 degree angles. That is a must and it gets inspected. 
So <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, we definitely have a long-standing history where uh, essentially police services operate a little bit on the same principles as their paramilitary organization, and and as as a result, those those high um, the high attention that uh, is paid to detail and structure and obedience are uh, highly highly critical. Uh, right. let, let me challenge right off the top then, just for the benefits of having an open dialogue. I think that there are some, perhaps those that don't accept the police culture right out the gate. So uh, we're clear on what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to separate my own views and just try to have a, a broader conversation. To somebody on the outside, would it be a fair argument to say that that level of de-individualization is the starting points of building conformity? Because you're removing the personality by in the in the in the setup you described, would that be a fair statement? I I, I think the purpose. I don't think it's a fair statement because I think the purpose of the individualizing the the member or the attendee or the student is meant so that when you are in high stress situations, you don't rely on your individualism to come to that. To, to bring that situation to a positive conclusion. At least that's okay. the And okay. if you allow people to cascade between their personality, somebody else's personality, their own personal feelings and, and biases, um, they might make an operational decision that might be incorrect. And it's about okay. trying to reduce the likelihood of making a mistake or a fundamental mistake in how we respond to a, a given situation. So I feel okay. like there's purpose to it. I will say um, how the angle that I folded my bed sheets, I, I feel was irrelevant to the end goal. Um, and, uh, and because I, I understand the purpose of wanting to develop structure and keep rituals. Right. But I, I, I feel like they were too hard on the, the military start side. It should be a little softer on the para side when it comes to paramilitary. Um, but they have, they have been, they have substantially settled on that, realized yeah. that it's, it was probably too extreme. Um, you still have to just polish your boots, that kind of no, stuff. Sure. Um, but they're not inspecting your bed sheets to, to look for that 45 degree angle. Um, so I, I will give them that. But I feel like that that was done with purpose. This whole theme of, of, of depersonalizing the individual was done with purpose uh, sure. so that people don't, um, to try and reduce their individual biases in any sure. situation or response. Well, I know that bias, uh, inherent bias and implicit bias is something we're gonna talk about later. So we'll come back to yeah. that one. You know, okay. even on the subject, so as much as I'm, I don't wanna ping pong between sort of positions because I'm actually not taking one here. Uh, yeah. I asked that question. Uh, I asked that question as, you know, is, is it a fair statement? Um, yeah. On the subject of making the bed, I, you know, it's funny, that's one I have always believed very strongly in. So my nine-year-old has to make his bed every morning before he gets up. And I, I think I heard it in a motivational speech somewhere. It's the first task of the day and you accomplish it and you've got something done before you've even, you know, gotten out of your bedroom. So yeah. I'm, I'm big on making the bed. I think it actually builds character and there's yeah. something about accomplishing your first task within the first minute that starts your day in the right way, but that's me and that's my bias. So um, I don't know about the 45 degree angles. My son doesn't get that, but, uh, but he definitely has to make the bed. Yes. Um, so let's, so, you know, we're talking about this environment. You're out there, you're, it's highly structured. 
Uh, and there is a lot of research to suggest that those that get hired with police services sort of expect this, and this is not a big culture shock. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the demographics at o Ontario Pol Police College. We call it OPC, so OPC, I'm, yeah. I'm, tr I'm trying to give the, I'm trying to use the terms here that everyone will understand, but uh, we all fall into that using acronyms too much. Yeah, so, so what were the... So the, the demographics back then, and, and, and I will tell you that there's not a substantial difference between the demographics back then and the demographics today. Demographics back then, um, you would see somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80% uh, being uh, your male white audience, maybe 78% male white audience. Um, of that, uh, you would have about uh, somewhere between the area of 15 to 16% female audience um, attending there or attendees, and your visible minority sector would probably sit around 4%, 3, 3%, somewhere in that neighborhood. And um, it, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a culture shock because while we are a paramilitary uh, endeavor you are still guided by whatever reflects in the masses. The tone or the culture is still reflected on whatever the masses are. So, um, and, and if your masses look a specific way and reflect a specific culture, then it drives a specific culture. And, and, and that is undeniable. And now people will want to say it doesn't, and, and that's fine, um, but we already know that it does. Um, I, I, I think that just because it drives you towards a specific culture and maybe makes others feel like they're the out group in that culture doesn't mean that those who are in the in group uh, have any nefarious intentions. Um, this is not about trying to place blame, nor is this trying to vilify anybody. It's about saying these are the conscious and unconscious experiences that people experience when they go to the Ontario Police College, and it is right. undeniable. Right. So, what was what was your reaction? You walk in the door, you look around. Uh, it was your was your childhood full of uh, diverse experiences, or was this the first time that you were in a new environment? What was that like for you personally? So, I grew up in Pickering. Um, for those who don't know Pickering right now, today Pickering would have uh, somewhere around the area of about 40, 37 to forty percent village minority. Uh, representation. Back then, it probably was sitting somewhere close to a 20% visible minority representation. The Ontario College having only a 3% visible representation, and I, I feel like some respects, I might even be generous for that 3%, um, that uh, you go there and uh, you automatically feel like you're part of the out group um, once you're separated. I will say, while I'm there with the other 15 Durham recruits, or 16 of us at that time, that was my in-group. And so I felt emotionally safe around my people. Okay. Uh, right. And, and so that was my in-group. But very early in the process, in the first week, you're separated. Right. And then you become part of a different in-group, which is whatever your classroom is. They do their best to try and have all the recruits from any given police service separated as part of your learning. Your, I'll call it your emotional learning. So you're not dependent right. on people that you already know. And uh, so I only had one other person from Durham in my class and then everybody else was scattered from out throughout Ontario in that representation. But you automatically start realizing that you, you, that you, it's undeniable that you are different or you sense that you're right. different. I'm talking from a cultural diversity standpoint. Sure. Everybody's in uniform. 
So you all have a common goal, which is to survive the Ontario Police College and go back to your re respective police services. But the undeniable part is that I can already sense that I'm, I'm part of the group, but I'm not part of the group. And I don't know exactly how to articulate that. You know, it's almost one of those things that if you haven't experienced it, it can be tough to articulate that. But I can already have this sense that I wasn't part of this group, but I was part of this group. And, um, but you know, the good news was we all had a common goal, which was to pass Ontario Police Culture, pass OPC. Um, right. and, and so that was, for me was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a culture shock because I, I kind of felt like I was on my own. It was almost like I was on my own while being surrounded. Right. And you know, and I, I do wonder how much of that, um, those experiences are informed by the fact that you grew up here. So I'm an immigrant to this country. I've been here for 26, 27 years now. Uh, and I was an immigrant of the 90s. A lot of South Asian people moved to Canada in the 90s. And uh, some of my experiences were very different, um, you know, back then. Uh, and I, I can draw a line between the differences in experiences I had in the 90s versus now, uh, you know, in 2021. But um, I, I think that probably plays a role. I was uh, somebody that grew up, I'm ethnically uh, from one part of the world. I grew up in the Middle East. I, I move here at a time when I'm working age and I'm hearing things about immigrants coming here to steal jobs. And so my lived experience was very different. Uh, and I imagine that growing up a naturalized Canadian, it, it probably helped a little bit when you're describing yeah. that sort of, okay, yeah. that's. Yeah, it, it, but nobody prepares you for that experience. Probably the only thing I, I could have or should have done before I went to Ontario Police College is to have spoken to some um, black officers ahead of time, mm. you know, um, mm. but I, they didn't reach out to me and I just, I just wasn't something that I was even considering. So, you know, right. it's, if, you know, you, you live, learn and you go on with that. So uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of the early experience at Ontario Police College. All right. So, so the demographic thing that wasn't forefront in your mind, it was sort no. of the, the, the existence that was, and you were sort of there for a purpose and that's what you focused in on. All right. So you graduate, uh, and you know, to, for the, for the benefit of everybody listening. So you graduate from Ontario police college. That's the base level knowledge. All new officers expected to have. You probably come back to your local service. There's some local focused training. Uh, you do some yeah. things that with your local service, and then you're out with a coach officer, uh, for a little bit. Somebody, yeah. they're not giving you a gun and a badge and sending you out, <laughs> with, uh, you know, without yeah, experience. On your own. <laughs> so, you know, you're out with the coach officer. Talk to us about those first weeks and months. And let's, let's, um, I'm going to try and, and push you here, Keith. Uh, let's talk about how you felt about it, not necessarily what the job entailed. So right. you're out in this patrol car, you've graduated, you've made it, but now you're out there. So what's that like, those early weeks and months? Right. So the recruiter actually asked me, says, Keith, where do you want to work? Give me your top pick where you want to work. I, quite honestly, I was just happy that I was employed. I would have worked anywhere. So he, but he asked me, he says, where do you want to work? So I said, how would you give me Pickering? And I only chose Pickering because I thought that would be one less thing. The, the lay of the road and land and, and, and town was one less thing I would have to learn because I already knew Pickering. Right. And then he said to me, he goes, great, because you're going to Bowmanville. And I said, where's that? Right. And so for those who don't know Clarington and don't know Durham region, it's the furthest east um, uh, town for us, uh, but it's also a high uh, farming community, um, although that's changing now, but at the time, 30 years ago, high farming community, uh, high Dutch population, mm -hmm. a lot of van this, van that, and, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of 
of Dykstra's and, and that type of name. And, and uh, so I go out there, they have to draw me a map. We, there was no GPS back then. Drew me nope. a map, we got there. And so now I'm on patrol. Uh, I, I'm, I'm experiencing a certain amount of anxiety because I know that I am not close to my home. And when I mean close to my home, I know that I'm in this predominantly white farming community. And, um, and I know that I am once again, part of the out group, even though I've got my coach officer beside me, he's got my back. He's going to teach me how to be a cop and all this great stuff. I, I quickly start sensing that I'm, when, when I'm going to calls that are related to rural, um, rural Clarington, that right. uh, I am part of the out group. And I, I actually had a couple of complaints, nothing big. Um, right. You know, I can remember the, the first complaint I received, and it was, uh, long story short, I was running radar, and this dog is right up against the cruiser barking at me. And right. I'm thinking, whose dog is this? this bark? Because we have a leash law. Right. So I finally, the dog leaves, and I follow the dog to this house. I go to right. the house, and she basically, I admonish her for allowing her dog just run, run amok on, in the town. Nice. She files a complaint saying that she believes that Constable Richard would be better served in urban policing. I own a dog. I still right. have a dog. I had a dog then, I have a dog now. I have right. no fear of dogs. Right? Right. My, my dog back then was a Doberman, which this dog was probably a lab. And okay. um, so I don't have a fear of dogs, but there's a certain, there's, there's a legal requirement to own one. And, um, but her bias and what caught me was that her feeling, knowing nothing about me, that I would be better served working right. in an urban police right. environment. And that was the first reminder that right. I was part of the out group. Even though I was technically in charge, if you will, sure. uh, because I was enforcing the law, right. I was reminded that I'm not part of that group. Right. And, and uh, you know, and that's that's a real, real experience, experienced by a lot of officers of color, I think, yeah. uh, you know, early on in uh, in various forms of law enforcement. I remember going to calls and having a lot of uh, my colleagues uh, who were white and uh, dealing with ethnic populations. And I remember the slur back then was I was whitewashed. Uh, yeah. You know, that was the expression because I worked with. So it's interesting, those community interactions have so much to do with our perceptions, yeah. and they have a lot to do with how we also identify with the people we work with, I think. I think that's a fair comment. Yeah, and, 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 it's, and it's funny because it goes both ways. This is not a, this was not a, an us against them experience for me. It wasn't me being uh, a black person or a black officer and the, the ominous white uh, community was against me. Because I also garnered complaints, or I won't say garnered complaints, I caught the ire of, uh, I can remember another call where a black family was yelling at me. And it's funny because this is a, is a high stressed call where there was, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 10 cruisers fight on the front lawn, this kind of stuff. I'm one of the last to show up, right. but they're yelling over the white officers to me. I'm right. at the back of the police crowd. And they were yelling at me and they're hurling insults, telling me I should just paint myself white. Right. Yeah. Right. Even though I'm the last one there and I have not had an interaction, they can only see me. They haven't spoken right. to me. And again, it reminded me again that I was alone because right. when I was the black officer, I was definitely alone because it did not reflect the community or the police service that I worked for. Right. When, the, when the, the combatant was black, they were like, you're not part of us. Right. So I'm not part of that black in group. I'm they right. consider me an, an out group person. Right. 
but I also don't look like the other people in uniform, so I'm part of that. Right. So then you become a person where you're on an island on to yourself. Sure. And, yep. and, and that in itself uh, garners a certain amount of loneliness, even though I'm surrounded by 10 cops. Right. Right. And so it's one of those things where you're, you, you start, have, you sense of being lonely, even though you're not alone. And, uh, and, and it was a constant reminder that no matter who was, I was going to come upon, whether they looked like me or were a polar opposite of me, that right. the potential for being on your own was always there. And sure. I, and I harbored that for a long time. Right. Well, that's, you know, that, that, that leads nicely into the question I was going to ask you, um, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, the police identity and sort of um, the inter or the interplay between your identity as a police officer and your identity as a member of your community. So I was struck by your first choice when you said I wanted to police where I lived. And uh, I have uh, talked to a lot of police officers that don't like to police where they live for a whole range of reasons. They prefer to be a little removed. So that was an interesting choice. And maybe you'll unpack that for me a little later on. But uh, how does how does that, uh, how do you experience that? You know, you have an identity as a police officer on or off the job, I imagine. Yeah. And you are also an active member of your community. So is there, is there some identity tension there? Yeah, so you end up, uh, you, you try to live between both worlds. Um, be, because I, I, you know, my, my, my cultural background would be, would be West Indian or Caribbean, um, I know, uh, all too well that police are not necessarily given the same amount of respect in the Caribbean as they are in North American policing. And so, you know, that's ever present on my mind. But at the same time, I'm thinking I'm trying to be that ambassador for the police right. and the Black community. So when I'm on patrol in this right. predominantly white community, I'm trying to represent both entities. And, 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 and then I, you know, inevitably you take off your uniform, you're now heading home or you're on your own time. Um, but you're still responsible as an officer for any, any type of interaction that may occur even while you're off the job. So you're never technically off the job. Um, and so you're, you're, you're constantly, I find that you're constantly on alert you're constantly being uh, vigilant about your surroundings. Um, I, would, I, I found myself always, for my entire career, uh, as a, if I ever walked up towards a pane of glass, always looking at the silhouettes behind me. Right. You know, uh, when you're in restaurants, you know, you're always trying to see where the exit points are. You're always trying to have a seating where, um, where your back is against the wall. Right. To see potential threats, and I'm. These are all the things when you're off duty, right? Right. And, sure. And sure. It took me a long time, probably, I, and I adopted that because that's what everybody around me did. Right. And it took me probably the first decade before I started to try and try to relax on that. Uh, and I you know the first the first interaction was if I'm going to a restaurant with a bunch of cops, we can't all be facing the same direction. So I would look at them and go, I don't trust you guys have my back, but I'm putting my back to this because I can't have five of us all facing the same direction. It looks ridiculous. Right? You know, it, it's funny, Keith. We have this conversation in a lot of honesty, like yeah. it's the most normal and natural thing in the world. And I'm, I'm catching myself listening to you going, yeah, 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 I get that. I get that. But there are people who are listening to this podcast and there are people that are going to be watching this video that that doesn't always make perfect sense to. 
so let me just put some context there. Uh, there is a lot of research that suggests that the state of constant hypervigilance is actually quite trying on the body of a law enforcement officer. Yes. And over a yes. sustained long period of time, that constant elevated state of vigilance actually is, is it's harmful for your health, right? It, yes. it leads to burnout. It can lead to a level of stress. And it, it most importantly makes the entire environment sort of in, you know, threatening. So you're always on. And that yeah. constant adrenaline spike is actually not really great for you, uh, which is why there's, you know, we know we now know with research that we need to do a better job with balance and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I think the average person might be listening to this conversation saying, why are you always feeling so threatened? You know, what is it in life that is threatening you so much? Because I don't walk out my door and worry about where the exits are. So what would you say to that? Uh, well, the, the first thing that we know as officers in Ontario is that we are all on an accelerated pension. We're all on an accelerated pension. Uh, we all, uh, our pensions max out um, um, after 30 years, which is five years earlier than our civilian complement, and even in the same organization, because our life expectancy is five years shorter on average. Right. So we, I understand that. Obviously, you always want to hope that you live long, as long and prosper as long as you can. Uh, but the reality is, pound for pound, uh, police officer in Ontario, uh, our life expectancy is five years shorter than the average per, average other male or female in Ontario. So that's so you already know that you um, there is a certain detrimental effect to the policing environment. But we also know that people are uh, not everybody's a fan of the police. And right. I don't ever know when somebody's in the parking lot following me. Uh, right. Safety is paramount. We get drilled in on our personal safety, but it's not just our personal safety. Uh, so it's not a selfish endeavor. It's also, you're constantly vigilant for the safety of those around you. And okay. it's not one of these things where I put on this cape, or in, in this case, this uniform and say, okay, now I'm gonna go ahead and protect the public. I then take the cape off. Now it's about self. No, right. if I'm in the grocery store, Right. I'm still looking for threat cues for the safety of those around me, even though I am not working. And when you are willing to say to a perfect stranger, I will put my safety at harm's way for you, and I don't even know your first name, it takes a certain person that wants to or is willing to risk their life for somebody that they don't know. And sure. that feeling of that sentiment doesn't come off when the clock strikes four o'clock or five right. or eight in the morning, right? That becomes part of your life, that you're, you're devoted to risking your life for others. Sometimes you're risking your life for people that don't want your help. Sure. But you sure. can't turn that on and off as the clock strikes and then, you know, and then you throw on your, it becomes part of you. That I'm, I'm, okay. You're always looking for those risk factors. And so you're always willing to risk yourself for the betterment right. of those around you. Right? And, so and you can't turn that off. So if if and I, I get where you're coming from, um, you're so you're you. I'm going to come back to that whole identity question. So you know you talked about some cultural uh, nuances with uh, you know with your background, and so I want you to picture for yourself or picture for us, anyways. You're sitting with a group of friends, and you're in a safe environment. You're not watching the background. You are these are people you trust, but outside of the policing community, the conversation at hand is generally anti-police. And you have two roles. You are still a member of this group. These are your friends. This is your background, but you are also a police officer. How does one navigate that reality, that spot, 
when you're sitting in your friend's living room and yeah. these are people you value, but perhaps your new identity is sort of, you know, drawing you into an uncomfortable gray area. How does, how does one deal with that? Um, you know, my, I, the, the culture that I've developed with my friends is that they're free to have whatever opinion they want. I would say that the vast majority of my friends aren't necessarily anti-police. Uh, a lot of their experiences are anecdotal, so they're not necessarily speaking about the entire police fraternity, but usually they're speaking on specific uh, events that have happened to them. I'm, I'm always willing to listen. Um, but the experience that, uh, that uh, Blacks experience in Canada versus white experiences, when we're talking in a police context, are, are grossly different. And the perceptions of police based on your cult identity can be grossly different as well. And, sure. and we have to be real about that because a lot of people will, will deny that exists. Right. Right. Um, usually it's because they haven't experienced it so they just deny its existence. But the reality is, is when I'm around my friend group, um, I allow them to say whatever piece they, they want to. Sometimes they will solicit me for feedback. I will be right. honest and open about that feedback. Um, right. But they, 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 they are very mindful not to blame me for the experiences of, of police in general. So sure, but, but wouldn't it be fair to say, I mean, at the end of the day, the uniform does de-individualize uh, us to a certain extent. And so when you have an interaction with the uniform, uh, and I'm, I'm using that term uh, sort yeah. of with purpose here, it isn't personal, it is organizational, because that, that is the informed perspective of an interaction with police. So while you might have individual experiences, those are still the community's reaction to the uniform writ large, as opposed yeah. to the individual officer. Isn't that fair? That's that's fair to say. Um, but you know, I, I guess the way it's usually framed is they'll say, "I got stopped by the police today," right. and so they're talking as a whole. I know that it had to be an individual officer because nine hundred cops didn't stop one person, but they reference it as though I stopped stopped by the police. I will then turn it back to them and say, "Who stopped you?" or why did he or she stop you? Uh, so I draw them in to have that individual uh, conversation versus people talking about the police as though it's, we're this one-celled, um, single-celled amoeba that just walks around with one purpose and one consciousness. Uh, and I always try to correct people when they talk about the police. And they'll say, what do the police think? And I'll always draw it back to say, you want to know what I think? You want to know maybe what that officer was thinking? We can have right. those discussions. Um, but my friends, are, I will say that they're very respectful to not blame me, even for the indiscretions of others. Um, sure. But I've, I've had to develop that over years. Um, sure. uh, and I wouldn't say that any of my friends are necessarily anti-police, but they are critical of the police. Sure. And, 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 and to be quite honest with you, I'm okay with the criticism. I right. think that if you're a police officer and you don't um, and you don't uh, open yourself to criticism, then you probably should find another line of work. We are a public entity. We are the professionals. We are hired to be the professionals, and we can't function without somebody uh, bestowing a critical eye on the work we do. And I'm okay with that. Right. Well, that sounds like a great place to take a little break here. So we're going to take a quick stop. Up to this point, we've been talking with Sergeant Keith Richards, recently retired after 31 years of service. Uh, we've been unpacking his early years. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those perceptual factors that influence policing. Uh, stay tuned. Stay with us.
All right, welcome back. So we've been chatting about uh, Sergeant Keith Richards' early career and his perceptions uh, around policing and that new environment. And sort of where we left off was somewhere in the early stages of his career. And so we're going to shift the conversation a little bit to about the 10, 15 year mark. Uh, that's a good ways down, sort of that, um, you know, that um, policing journey. Tell us a little bit about the differences and the challenges at about the 10 year mark versus the early years. So at the 10 year mark, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You've got lots of confidence. Um, I, uh, I have a, a certain theme to how I interact with people that I've meeting for the first time. I'm very confident in the paperwork. That's really not a concern at that point. Um, and, and at that point, you already feel like you're a leader amongst your, your, uh, your workmates. Um, I, at that point, I, I, I can say that I, while I, I, I never viewed myself as being overconfident, I did exude a certain amount of confidence when I went to recalls, because I think by the time you have about a decade underneath you, you've seen a substantial amount, and there aren't a lot of surprises at that point. You might be thinking about your future endeavors in terms of your leadership direction. But for me, you know, thinking about the, on a personal side is I'm, I'm feeling really good about myself. I'm feeling pretty confident about myself. And, and I'm, I, at that 10-year market, I'm in a real good place. I've, I've okay, already great. started the That's... respect of my workmates. Well, now I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to build off that. Uh, so you made a comment there right at the end, which was actually a perfect segue into my next question. You said, yeah. I earned the respect of my teammates, my workmates. Yeah. Uh, you talked about your competence, if you will, with doing your job. So I'm going to refer to some research that has been done um, that suggests that around. So there's been, as you know, there's a lot of studies of policing out there. We, we mm -hmm. don't have as many studies in Canada, but we have a lot of content coming out of the United States. Um, and one of the, the common trends you will find is that roughly around the 10-year mark, um, all the research indicates that the level of police cynicism starts to increase. Um, that's a, a general norm that has been identified through multiple interviews with police officers from across the United States, uh, as well as in England. And that 10-year mark seems to be um, the critical point at which cynicism has increased um, to a certain extent. There's a little bit of withdrawal from, you know, the broader society because there's a greater identification with the role. Um, you're much more competent 10 years in, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah. Um, and the last bit there that I want to talk about is there's a little bit of the shedding of the idealism that a lot of people start. So, you know, what, what they start with. So that ideal, I'm going to serve the community, I'm doing something. Some of that is reduced. Now, these are from interviews with police officers on the job. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, because you talked about your workmates' perceptions. You talked about your competence. How does this interact with, uh, you know, the public? Is there a greater level of cynicism? Yeah, so uh, here's what I would tell you. Um, part of the challenge we have, or had, because it was two different experiences, 30-year policing versus today's policing, and I'll go back and forth between the two, is part of the challenge is uh, a lot of people that gravitate towards policing have a type A personality, right? Ma'am, just give me the facts. I'll do the investigation. I'll arrest the bad guy, put him in the jail, we're all safe. Um, that was never my style of, 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 of character or personal being. You know, I was always the person that I would say, are you okay? <laughs> right? 
I can take the report later, but are you right. okay? Right. I, I can I can honestly say that I would I would in that sense I would be part of the out group because most officers don't do that. And that's not to be critical of them. Sure. It is what it is. But I would right. be the I would be the one that would say, are you okay? Right. And and so that that kind of made me a little different. Now that said, you know, you then fast forward to a decade in in terms of my police experience, and I find that the, the data that you're producing, a lot of it comes from at that point in your career, you start thinking, I've got confidence. Um, maybe I want to now go down the road of promotion. Right. But I'm unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. You see how cynicism might start creeping in. At that mm-hmm. point, usually about eight to 10, you're starting to go into specialty units. Maybe I want to be in tactical. Maybe I want to be in forensics. Maybe I want to be in major crime. Right. If you're not successful, that starts building. Because you have to remember when 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 the when the police service hires you, the intention mm-hmm. is to hire the best of the best. You only want the best in your organization. Right. In policing in, in, in Ontario, we have about a 5% success rate. So when you have a 5% success rate, and you um, when you have a 5% success rate, you're getting the best of the best. So now you're in this organization in, in Durham, let's say we have 900 officers mm-hmm. and you're now one of 900 of the best of the best, but now you're competing against the best for the specialty units. So right. uh, it becomes an even bigger challenge to try and get those specialty units because you're competing against people that are equally as strong um, Sorry, on, Keith. on the job. We're, we're old friends, so you're going to have to accept this. I'm going to cut that answer off, though, and I'm going to refocus on the question I asked, which actually had nothing to do with organizational cynicism, which I think exists fairly across all, all jobs, you know, that internal frustration with progress or whatever. I, I fully get that. I respect that. That's right. a different conversation. The one I'm trying to have here is cynicism with the general public, you know, this sense that people don't get it, uh, you know, people don't get what I do. That level of cynicism is what really the research is talking about. It's that there is what starts out as an ideal uh, notion of justice then becomes, I'm out there helping people that don't treat me well, that don't always respond well to me. And that can build a level of frustration. That's the cynicism we're talking about. At some point, you start to view the public a little bit differently. Yes, but the, the foundation of that cynicism comes from experiences that are more, I believe, that are more internal than external. Okay. I, we, if you give me, uh, uh, if you give me some type of critical uh, assessment and you say, Keith, I've been watching you work, you're not doing a good job. If right. I'm not already in a good place, I'm going to push back on that. But if I'm in a good place, I'm going to say, thank you very much, Neil, I'm going to work on that. What the public doesn't realize is that there are experiences within a police organization that any given officer is experiencing. They then go sure. out into the public and it right. appears that they are cynical. I shouldn't right. say they appears. They probably are cynical. Sure. And then people are like, where did this uh, crusty cop come from? And why right. is this person even wearing a uniform? What right. they don't see is the behind the scenes experiences that officers are now getting. So they're not being successful in, in their career development. Uh, maybe they've seen one too many fatalities. Maybe they've uh, had experiences in domestic situations where they were trying to help the victim and the victim turned on them. And, right. and all these underlying career experiences 
then have you looking at that same officer saying, this person is jaded and why are they even here? I don't think any officer that I've ever come across early in their career mm -hmm. uh, came into the job with that level of cynicism, but it develops and harbors as you go along in that journey. And usually the starting point is if you were unsuccessful internally for something okay. that you want to do. Well, on, on the bright side, there is evidence that also suggests that as you continue on down the path, that balances out. And, you know, these are push and pull reactions to new environments. You know, the early optimism, the, you know, sort of that sense of reality sometimes being dashed. I think that that exists everywhere. We can all be idealistic about any job. You can make that argument about professors that start out with an idea and 10 years in, they have a different viewpoint. I, I think the, the point I often stress to my students uh, when I talk in class is that remember that we are people first and law enforcement second. You cannot get to law enforcement without being a person first. So even the public has an idealized version of what the police are supposed to be. And that runs contrary to the fact that they are human beings with lived experiences and stressors right. and they bring that to the table. Uh, we don't get to cut you guys out of a mold, right. uh, you know, which would make, I imagine, police public relations much easier, um, you know, Absolutely. but then, but then depersonalized. So, you right. know, uh, all right. So along the same theme, you've heard, um, there's a lot of communication, a lot of talk about the blue line. Yes. And the blue line in policing has both a lot of people that support it and a lot of people that believe it is, it is a negative representation. Um, so on the one hand, I've heard uh, police research that has talked about it's a necessary part of the job because it safeguards, um, you know, whether it's against public hostility or a lack of understanding of the internal culture and the things that you guys go through. So there's a purpose behind that solidarity that is some positive outcomes. There are others. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to quote uh, Charles Ramsey. He is a retired uh, police chief from Philadelphia. He's done a couple of TED Talks. He's on CNN a lot. Um, he has got 47 years in policing and his position is, he doesn't like the term blue line because to him it represents a separation. He, I think he, in his TED Talk, he referenced it as he likes a blue thread. You kind of go through society and there's various interactions. Talk to me a little bit about your perception on this subject because I can't get through a whole class without somebody asking me about the blue line and its purpose. So, you know, uh, the blue line or the, the blue line mentality, uh, I, I call it a respect thing. I think that there is a need for it. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it, it's funny, you know, when you're in this, this specific industry, we'll say policing, uh, because there is this, this mutual respect for one another that where you are uh, putting yourself at harm's way for complete strangers, that that builds that camaraderie and that that respect amongst other police professionals, and mm -hmm. I, I think it's healthy to have that blue line respect. I think it's I have no I have no issues with it um, because I think it's what brings us together as law enforcement law enforcement personnel. I there there is no other industry that is like that uh, where you have that that commonality. And there and it's not to say that there's a commonality amongst other other uh, uh, employment endeavors. But in terms of being able to uh, insert yourself into people's lives, some of them mm -hmm. watch you, some of them don't watch you, it's an environment mm -hmm. on its own to its own. 
That said, where really things go awry is when um, when you uh, leverage your own credibility for the thin blue line, right? So when right. officers start either failing to report or lying or misleading people in order to protect others who represent law enforcement is when the credibility of policing comes into question. And, and, and the credibility of the, of the blue line comes into question. To me, I'm okay with us acknowledging that there is a specific spirit about policing, right. but it cannot be at the detriment of your own credibility and you cannot leverage that credibility or that respect for other law enforcement personnel. We were hired for a specific reason and we are officers for a specific purpose. And, uh, but unfortunately there are officers that would leverage their own credibility um, well, so I mean, uh, is it? I think I think it's fair to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I yeah. think what you're talking about is fringes, right? I mean, you take anything, any idea to the nth degree, and you can have a problem. Uh, you know, I've often tried to explain it this way. I think that having no sense of solidarity is one extreme, and that would be problematic, or it could be problematic. It could have some benefits, but there's definitely some problem areas there. On the end, to have so much solidarity that it's always you versus somebody else and you exclude the public right. is problematic. But I think sometimes that when you have two polar ends of a spectrum that actually creates more room in the middle for everybody else. Uh, how much of this do you feel uh, is really a matter of misrepresentation? So what we see in the media is representing perhaps a small segment of a police mindset that perhaps is not applicable to the majority but that media representation influences public view? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's, it's like everything else in life. You know, the, the, what we see or what people see in the media is usually a, a minute representation of the bigger picture. Uh, the media doesn't usually focus on the, the feel-good side of right. policing or the feel-good side of the blue line because that doesn't garner attention. It doesn't garner likes, it doesn't garner uh, views, and it doesn't right. garner sales. Right? right, so they will focus on that. But I would tell you that the vast majority of, of police officers uh, have this admiration and respect for each other because they understand what is at stake or they appreciate what is at stake. And, and that appreciation um, is something that you sense. You can't see it, you can't smell it, you right. can't hold it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just something that you sense amongst other people that are in the same fraternity. Uh, but I would say that what, do you, what is seen in the media might be 2%, it wouldn't even reach 5% of, of, of the experiences of, of being a law enforcement personnel. And so, uh, but the challenge is, because some people say, well, why don't you share the other 95%? Right. Uh, but we're, we're not looking for recognition. Right. And so, right. yeah, we could share more of it, but we're not looking for recognition. Uh, and we're not looking to inundate the, the, the public with all the good that we're doing either. Because right. um, then it would look like we're, you know, then it would just look like a campaign to, to make us look sure. good. Right? Sure. I think you just do it and because it's the right thing to do and you let the chips fall where they may. There are always going to be people that will be critical of the blue line and critical of policing. And I'm okay with right. that. As right. long as it's evidence-based criticism, I'm, I'm okay right. with that. Well, I, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, really what we're saying here is I, the whole reason that motivated me to do a podcast and to have this channel where I talk about profiles in policing is to go, there's more to the conversation. And I've often been critical of what I have 
often dubbed the soundbite generation, which is not to pick at any one group of people, but to say that we live in a time where we want information to be short and quick. And what that does, is it lacks context. Um, I think to conclude this section though, I'm assuming you and I are in agreement, but I'm gonna put it out there anyways. The blue line has purpose and it has functional value, but we can both agree that taken to its extreme, it's problematic. And when it's represented right. extremely, that's worthy of criticism and that's worthy of sort of, you know, this discussion. Would that yeah, be absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and that I think too much is I think the focus while we're talking about a completely relevant subject, I think we talk about it so much that we don't realize we're talking about a segment, Yeah. you know, uh, and that comes back to the earlier point, which is the uniform sort of gets written over everything and right. it becomes representative of all, right? right. Yeah, so, so I know in your bio, I had mentioned that you had been uh, in the recruiting unit. In fact, you were the supervisor for three years. Uh, yeah. So you would have seen some of the challenges that I think tie into the conversation we're having. Uh, yeah. Let's talk numbers for a little bit um, because I, I, you know, I like numbers. So uh, Stats Canada suggests that, you know, about 7 million Canadians identify as being a visible minority. That's 22% uh, of our population, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, about 50% of our population is women. Uh, I think that's well agreed upon. Uh, and yet, policing seems to have uh, about, I think the stats in Canada are 8% Canada-wide uh, are visible minorities, 4% are Indigenous. And the numbers go further because one might say, well, it's not reflective because we're talking about a very large country. So even if I looked at Vancouver and Toronto police services that are very diverse by comparison, they both sit around 26% visible minority officers, which lag a fair ways behind those communities. I think Vancouver has a 49% minority and um, Toronto has a 51% minority. Uh, all of these numbers suggest that there's a big gap, right? And I think we can agree, uh, we can agree that the gap between 22% in the general population and 8% of the police service is problematic. The second set of numbers I wanted to talk about a little bit was women. So we've been keeping data on women's participation on as a rep, as a percentage of the police force from 1986. And in 1986, they made up 4%. We've done relatively much better in our society of bringing women onto the police service but we are only just cracking 22%. So I've just talked about some gaps. Those are the numbers, those are the realities. You were in recruiting. Uh, I'm not so much focused on the conversation we had earlier, but what are the challenges in even addressing that? So if the stated goal is to have a more representative police service, what is the recruiting challenges that result in this number carrying on? So, I gave you a lot done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to process there. So, let, so I'll give it to you this way because there, there are certain perceptions that I, I want to make sure are out there. So uh, every police chief that I've ever come across wants to reflect the community that they serve. That said, you're right. Uh, so Toronto Police is sitting somewhere around 22%, which is pretty good in terms of its female representation. Durham, we're probably sitting around 18% of our female uh, representation. But what gets left out of that is that we are talking about uniform, uniform members. Right. What we're not acknowledging in that conversation is our civilian complement. So at any given time, Durham probably sits around 320, somewhere in that neighborhood, civilian population. But they are part of the organization. 
So here's the here's the challenge. We're talking right. about uniform presence. Right. Right. But if you're trying to have a holistic conversation about the uh, culture of an organization, you can't right. dismiss the female majority because probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80 percent of our civilian population in our organization are women. We're not even right. going to talk about that. And, I'm not, and this is not to be critical of your data, Neil. It's something right. that often gets missed. Well, uh, here's the thing, though. Hold on, hold, hold on, Keith. Hold on. Uh, yeah. Here's here's what I want to push back on. So I fully acknowledge, and the Stats Canada data, which we all consider to be fairly reliable, yeah. will also indicate that seven out of ten administrative positions on the police service are occupied by women. I'm right. not trying to cloud the numbers, but I'm talking about uniform law enforcement because right. the argument on that front would be, yes, women are well represented in administrative jobs, but administrative right. jobs are not front facing. So it is, right. it's a bait and switch to say, well, hey, what does the community look like when you're out there policing go, yeah, behind the scenes, we have a lot of women. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm not. Uh, yes and no. So it depends what okay. you, how you interpret your first line of experience. So if you come in to get fingerprinted, in all likelihood, it will be a woman. If you come into our front desk, in all likelihood, it will be a civilian female that is going to be the, your first point of contact. So there are times when our civilian females are the first point of contact. If you call into 911, most likely, because 90% of them are women, you're going to speak to a woman. Your first point of police contact, if you call 911, will be, again, a woman. And sure. we dismiss those female presences as though they don't have the same added value, even though they might be the first experience, right? All and right. we can't dismiss that. That said, um, I know where you're going with, or I, I think I know where you're going with in terms of the line of questioning. Here's the challenge we have in policing in terms of the uniform side. Right. Um, a lot of women don't gravitate towards policing in the first place. So that becomes our first challenge. Not that they are unsuccessful, but if I give you that 5% success rate in Ontario, right. that means that I need 100 females to have five successful. Right. That is a daunting task to find 100 females that are willing to apply in the first place because mm -hmm. they don't necessarily gravitate towards our industry. A lot of people believe right. that our industry is, um, uh, well, it is male-dominated, but there's a certain macho experience to it. A lot of people think that there is a lot of physical labor involved or labor's experience that they don't necessarily want. I would argue that we are almost polar opposite to nursing, right. where a lot of women gravi yeah. naturally gravitate towards. Sure. Policing, a lot of males gravitate towards it. Uh, that said, our goal notwithstanding our civilian complement, is always going to reflect the community in a uniform context. So right. we have 51% women in Durham region. Ideally, we would have 51% women uh, on our frontline policing response uh, right. staff. That so that's the our goal. And, and that's, that's the ideal. And I understand as a former manager of recruiting, I understand yield ratios and I, I, get, I get the point. So first, mm -hmm. I'll come back. I'll concede my, it was never my intent to murky the waters. Um, I fully acknowledge the administrative side. I understand the complement and gender distribution in the communication center. That was not uh, an attempt to sort of change the conversation. I was talking about uniformed officers. Uh, and really, I'm trying to not approach this from a, I'm not wagging my finger and saying they're not doing enough. I'm saying there are probably some recruiting challenges. Right. So I can relate it to my previous job as a recruiter where we had specific demographic needs for specific clientele. And we couldn't staff that 
because our general applicant pool was not coming from those minority communities. Right. So I cited earlier, uh, only 11% of new recruits are, um, are minorities. I don't think that's a necessarily reflective of discriminatory hiring practices. I'm gonna say that there's probably an element of challenge in the recruiting of right. minority cultures and groups Correct. for a range of reasons. I think globally, we have a very different perspective on policing. Uh, the public perception of policing in other countries is very different. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to get at the challenges. So I've talked to people in the past and I said, look, you don't want to know why they're all ethnic minorities on your hiring poster, because they don't have to represent somebody else to attract them. They're trying to attract somebody. It's a marketing strategy. It's a, it's an, a recruiting strategy. What are the challenges you face trying to re recruit minorities? So the, the, the challenges uh, in recruiting underrepresented uh, demographics is that they, from a cultural standpoint, they don't necessarily always look at police as being an admirable job. Sometimes they look at it as they are going against the grain in terms of how, how their in-group, cultural in-group perceives police. Uh, for a lot of women, it becomes a barrier. Ontario Police College in itself becomes a barrier. If you are a female and you have children, it will become a barrier. Uh, and I tell this to people all the time because no matter how I get it, there are a lot of great men out there that take care of kids. I understand that. But the reality right. is, and we have to acknowledge the reality, is that women are still have a greater uh, 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 domestic responsibility than men. And now you take that female who may have kids and you say, I'm going to remove you from your family for the next 15 weeks. Right. That becomes daunting. And I can't even tell you how many times I had prospective applicants that said, I, I can't, I, at this point in my life, I can't go to the Ontario Police College until my kids are older. Right. Fair enough. Would you consider dispatch? Right. But, you know, those are real life scenarios that we have to uh, have to entertain. I don't think even though our, our goal has always been to have 51 percent women in uniform, I can honestly say that that won't happen in my lifetime. Right. And it probably I, won't happen in my kids lifetime uh, right. because we just don't have the applicant pool there. The, we have the fundamental barriers in terms of removing people from their home and selling Ontario Police College. We have barriers in terms of how people perceive the work that we do. Right. We have barriers in terms of how cultures perceive our identity and work as well. And right. all those in their totality lead us to uh, have underrepresented applicant numbers coming right. in in the first place. So then what we have to do is we have to go on the offensive in terms of marketing. You know, my old chief used to say, to see me in Durham Regional Police, I have to see me in Durham Regional Police. And so that's where the marketing part comes from, where you start developing marketing for specific demographics to encourage them to apply. But at the end of the day, if your applicant numbers are underrepresented, then your final numbers or your hiring numbers will be underrepresented as well. Uh, sure. I think part of the negative... Um, part of the negative feedback we do get is people will say, well, they're lowering the standards for visible minorities to get in. That doesn't happen. I get it. That's right. a perceptual thing. Usually that perception comes from people who aren't part of that visible minority group that have been unsuccessful. And so right. to look back at their own friend group or their own peer group, they don't want to say I was unsuccessful. So they want to say, well, they gave it to a visible minority because that's what they're hiring right now. But the reality right. is uh, that's not the truth, right? right. Um, and we have to be real about that, but it will it, that will forever be a challenge with us. How do we change perceptions in order to increase the applicant uh, pool number in the first place?
Sure. So, I, I mean, I think you brought up some very relevant sociological reasons why the social structure of, uh, you know, has uh, does impact people's chances and the ability to take on such endeavors. How much of a priority should it be to find new and inclusive ways? And I don't know what those are, right? I'm, I'm just saying, my, the question is this, how much of a priority should it be to have a representative police service? So, yeah, so it has to be the utmost priority. So you will talk to two different groups of officers, really. One group will say, it doesn't matter if you're red, blue, or green. If, if you have that uniform on, you've got a job to do. But then there will be the other group of officers that will say, yes, we need, in order to be a dynamic organization, you need to have represent balance of representation. Uh, I lean towards that group because I understand the merit of it. Um, if somebody's dialing 911 and they say, I can hear somebody kicking in my front door, you're right. I don't care if the officer is green. For that a priority call, it doesn't matter. Right. But the majority of our police complaints don't come during the a priority call. Right. The majority of our complaints come during the, the C's and D's, where you actually have time to interact with somebody. And that's where that's where that the, the challenges start. So let me up. let me just interrupt you there. Can you just provide yeah. the listeners with a little bit of context? I know what you mean, but you said right. a priority call versus C and D. Um, yeah, so an a priority call, some people call it a priority call, some people call it priority one. An a priority call is I'm down on one 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 one. I'm down on nine one one. I can hear them kicking in my door. A B priority call might be you went to the movies, you come home, your front door is wide open, you don't know if somebody's in there, you're gonna sit in your car, you're not in any immediate danger. We're gonna get there as fast as we can because persons or persons might still be in the house. Right. Uh, a C priority call would be uh, we have a shoplifter in the security office, we're waiting for a, cru a cruiser to come by and process this person. They're not acting out or anything like that, so we're just waiting. And a D priority call would be, um, you go out in your front lawn in the morning, there's a bicycle on your front lawn, you don't know whose it is, call the police. It could be stolen, it might not be stolen, I don't know whose bicycle it is. That, it could, that could sit for days waiting for somebody to deal with it, but there is no immediate threat or issue. So that, that's kind of the, 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 the scope of the four different priority calls. Right. When there's utmost of importance and time, that's not usually where the, the complaints come in. It's the time, the season Ds where you have time to interact with people is mm -hmm. where complaints typically start to happen because now you're having this interaction, this conversation, this communication, mm -hmm. and that becomes the bigger challenge. If you're also an organization that wants to think or pivot on a dynamic spectrum, then you need a spectrum of experience which is one of the reasons why we don't take just people that have taken law enforcement educational endeavors into our fold. Because right. you want to have that diversity of opinion, you want to have that diversity of experience. If everybody we, we uh, hired looked right. and acted and think a certain way, then we would never have that difference of opinion or diversity of opinion. So mm -hmm. it's, it's very important that we diversify our workforce so that we can come up with remedies for those that we serve Community serve in the first place. So, so do you believe that I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot here for a second? Yeah. Do you believe that you have? Now I, I know you can't speak for everybody. I'm asking for your perception. Yeah. Do you believe that there is good diversity of perspective amongst uniformed police officers on life in general, or is there a fairly uniform sort of a culture that holds uh, sway? That's an unfair question, I guess. No, no, no. I, I think that there is a, there's a good diversity of perspective. 
But I think that sometimes what happens is the, the louder group, you tend to uh, voice over the quieter group. And the quieter group are usually the ones that have the more diversity of perspective. Um, so then you have the personalities that then override that. Um, and that's hard to change because that's part of that culture, right? right. You know, it's kind of the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And mm. so you have to try and un override that culture. Uh, and, but that can take decades right. to, to right that ship, right? So um, that, that for us, we know that's ever present. Right. Uh, we're constantly vigilant to try and uh, improve the culture, but by no means are we there yet. We do need right. greater representation because there's value in it. If, we, if I want to learn how to uh, create a specific initiative for a specific demographic within my uh, patrol zone, if there's right. nobody at the table when we're planning right. this that can speak mm -hmm. to that specific demographic, then how are we supposed to properly patrol that, that, that area? And so, so two questions. Because people, people always say it doesn't matter what they look like. Right. If they, whoever the best person for the job is, is whoever got the highest mark on the test. And I would right. challenge them and say, the highest mark doesn't necessarily mean it's the best person for the job. The right. highest mark just means it's the highest mark. But then you mm -hmm. have to define what does the best person for the job look like? That's, that's the, the biggest challenge we have in policing. What is the best? And the best isn't necessarily the highest score. Right. So really the takeaway, I know you're not in recruiting anymore and you're not, uh, you're not actively trying to recruit through this podcast, but <laughs> if there are people in, um, if there are people out there who are visible minorities or they are, uh, or women and they feel they're underrepresented, that's true, but they should still apply. There's a place and there's a purpose and there's still a priority for diversity. All right. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, come back. I'm going to come back to something you didn't, um, acknowledge fully, but sort of we alluded to it. So we were talking about this whole internal culture. We were talking about cynicism. We were talking a little bit about the creation of what has often been referred to as the us versus them mentality. And we unpacked that a little bit. We talked about where it was justifiable or understandable, if nothing else. And on the other side, where it was sort of not. So I'm gonna shift that. I'm gonna build off that and ask you this. There is both anecdotal and research evidence that suggest that it's not just cynicism with the general public. What you also start to see a little later on in the career is a cynicism with the white shirts, right? And for, for context, I'll say the white shirts are your police leaders and your administrators. And so if the argument has always been, nobody understands the police like the police, uh, and in a Canadian context, we don't have elected civilians in those positions, we have police officers that rise through the ranks. Yes. Um, how, do you, how do you square that line of thinking? Because arguably the white shirts have been where you've been and they get it and they are part of that internal police subculture that the general public might not understand, but they do. So how do we start to get the fracture between the front line and the white shirts? So usually, that's, that's a very that's a dynamic question in itself. So part of the challenge is, is as you ascend in an organization, you become more farther removed from frontline policing. And then you reach to the, what we call the senior officer level, which is inspectors and above, or, uh, and, and when you get to that inspector and above, that's usually when you transition from a dark blue shirt to a white shirt with, so it's usually dark blue with silver or white to, 
a white shirt with uh, gold. Right. And when you when you transition to our senior officer level or our executive level, you become even further removed. Unless you're you know unless you're um, unless you're a duty inspector, you're further removed from frontline policing. It becomes less about day to day police operations, more about uh, budgets, more about what most corporate executives have to deal with. And as you mm -hmm. continue to ascend, the perception of those down below is you don't understand what we're doing. Right. And and there is some truth to that. To 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 deny that to deny that I would be doing uh, the front line a disservice because the reality is that they aren't plugged into what's happening on the front line response. And usually there's a delay in them even receiving that information. So if we find that there's a cultural shift in terms of how people are processing suspects, by the time it reaches the superintendent, it's been probably been going on for a year. So there's also mm -hmm. a delay in even receiving that perspective. And so because we know there's a delay, the feeling is they are removed from our operations and that develops the us versus them. Also, mm -hmm. when you get to the executive level, you're more likely to be the disciplinarian whether it be that you're an adjudicator or something like that, or you're overseeing internal affairs or something like that. And so then that further drives, uh, I don't want to say drives a wedge between us because it's not really a wedge. It just uh, it allows uh, those two entities to gravitate right. apart, even though you're really together for the common good, which is the organization and the community. But there right. is a cultural divide once you get to that executive level, that is undeniable. So doesn't, uh, you know, you know, early, and I, I will sort of round this whole conversation up with, uh, you know, sort of some strategies around good mental health, but I was talking about this impact of cynicism on your longevity, your, you know, wow. your, your life, your life expectancy. You're now painting for me a picture um, and you're painting a picture here that says, so after a certain period of time, there's a level of cynicism, whether it's justifiable or not, we've acknowledged that it exists to some level with yeah. the public. And now inside the organization, there's a level of cynicism with those at the top. It is sounding like a very isolating place where <laughs> you're this little bubble that's being pressured from all ends by people that don't get you. How can, how can this be healthy? No, it's not healthy. And, uh, and so, you know, the, and the organization acknowledges that it exists. Uh, our police association acknowledges that it exists. And to some degree, our human resources would acknowledge that it's, it exists. And so what we, between the three entities, you know, we do as much as we can, or they do as much as they can to support the members recognizing that, yeah, you, you, you're receiving criticism and, and scrutiny from all different sides. You are finding that you're gravitating away from certain entities uh, and gravitating towards them, certain entities. And so there's this constant barrage of, of uh, whether it be negative communication or experience that an, uh, any given member is experiencing. Now you have to also factor in that these people that you're uh, trying to uh, support also mm -hmm. have a badge and a gun, a pistol, shall we say, whether it be an right. AR, shotgun, they have, they have use of force, deadly weapons, they have other uh, use of force weapons to their disposal. And you wanna do your, your due diligence to make sure that they are as balanced as possible. 
So we can't just leave this scenario to its own devices. They have to evolve. Our organization and our association have to go on the, on the um, offensive to ensure to the best of their ability that members stay balanced. Uh, I'm, I'm talking emotionally balanced. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the investment. How much of this do you think is influenced by the age of your service? And uh, so let me, let me uh, give a little bit of context to what I'm asking there. Police services in Ontario are aging much, and that's reflective of what's going on in our society writ large. The number of officers presently on Canadian police services over the age of 50 has grown to 18%. How does that impact uh, modern day policing? Does it, is it positive, negative? Uh, what's, your, what's your take on the aging police force? So the, where that came from was uh, the, the cohort of, of applicants during my time was, uh, I, I, we call, I call it a bubble. So I was at the back end of that bubble. And so what happened was in the uh, late 80s to the early 90s, there was this, this, this influx of hiring throughout mm-hmm. Ontario. And it was a good time if you're trying to be an officer. There were lots, lots of hires, lots of movement, lots of applicants, lots of processing. And this, we had this wave of police increase. Right. That bubble, I watched that bubble slowly get their 20-year bar. And, 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 and ahead of that bubble, uh, uh, you would see maybe um, 9 to 20 people get that 20-year acknowledgement. Behind that bubble, nine to 20. But during my bubble, it's about 60 to 80, right? right. Or, or whatever number. But that's just, the numbers are off, but that's kind of the, yeah. so you can understand what the bubble looks like. Yep. That yep. bubble is now receiving the 30-year acknowledgement. Right. And you can, st- once again, you can see how the numbers before it were low. Right. Huge numbers for about seven years. And then it trickles back off behind it again. And so what's happening now is that same cohort that you're referencing are on the cusp of retiring. What you're going to see, though, is for us to maintain those numbers is there's going to be frantic hiring in Ontario to replace those those, uh, members that are between the ages of about 49 and 54, 55. Well, that's really promising for all my students out there, all the young people, uh, not just my students, just young people interested in policing. I obviously have a bias towards my own students. Uh, you know, they're in these justice programs. They're trying hard uh, to work towards a goal. But in general, for the sake of policing, it's a good time to be young. It's a good time. And, you know, on that subject, I'm going to play off that line a little bit. Uh, there's a there's a common old joke that policing is, I think, the old expression. I don't mean to sound gendered and uh, misogynistic, but I think it was a young man's game. Yeah. So let's let's pivot. Uh, let's pivot to the end of your career. Like, let's look at years 25 through 31. Um, different time. You know, I, I know Keith, that you're not an old guy, so don't don't you know take offense. But I mean, you're older than you were when you started. Yeah. You're different. You've grown. You've evolved. Um, talk to me about those end years. What was that like? Those the last the last six years on the job. You're you're seeing young guys, maybe closer to the age of your own children. Yeah. Your your perception surely must change. Yeah. So in the I'd say the last quarter of my career, I get promoted to sergeant. Um, you know, looking back, I probably could have or should have to some degree had entered the promotional process sooner, but I just loved 
being a constable. There was no real push or need for that. But then I entered the promotional process. I'm successful in the promotional process. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling confident about myself, right? Uh, I've had already taken on a leadership role within the police, even before the promotion. So I was one of the lead uh, instructors for bias training. And that allowed me to get to know a lot of people in the organization, but it'll also help build my own confidence because I was at the table for discussions, but I was also uh, the lead facilitator in training. Um, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself at this point, right? I mean, the last quarter, I feel very confident. Um, I'm going between several specialty units. I'm not on the front line doing frontline response, but I'm bringing added value to the organization because I'm training those who are on the front lines in some critical learning opportunities that will help uh, mitigate risk. So, right. um, and, and, and that's a good place to be. I then transition out of the training to uh, regional youth where I'm overseeing the portfolios and the work of officers that are in the schools, um, which in itself, at least in Ontario, is a very contentious um, school officer, school resource officers, school liaison officers, whatever you want to call them, uh, very mm -hmm. contentious, you know, subject with officers being in the schools, interaction, interacting with you, uh, and working through those nuances of officers and adolescent uh, youth. So um, it, was, it was a great time to be an officer in terms of that maturity piece and being able to leverage my, at this point, almost three years, uh, three decades of experience to help uh, putting that investment to younger officers uh, so that that investment's there when I transition out of policing and, and as a whole. Sure. You know, I, I think you and I could probably talk for days on this subject, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and it's, it's funny, I can't believe how much time has already gone by. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping that at some point you're going to come back and we'll talk about some specific issues. But I, I do I don't want to end on sort of uh, I, I want to make sure we've covered some of the key things. Talk to us a little bit about fair and impartial policing. You were the lead trainer on uh, that program. What was that? Um, what was the objective of the program? How did you do with it? Tell us a little bit about that. So uh, fair and impartial policing was a training, um, a training opportunity that came from Lord Friedel and Anna Lazio, who developed it in, in the US. And it's implicit bias and anti-racial profile training, essentially what it is. And uh, you know, it, probably the biggest criticism we had with fair and impartial policing is that some people felt it was too Americanized because it came from the US. There isn't any police applicable bias implicit training in Canada. And so you have to go where the training is. Now we did bring the training back and make it as Canadianized as possible, but there's, you can still sense the American part of it in terms of uh, university studies and, and so on. Uh, and so what it does is it take, we take you through this journey over the course of a full day uh, where you have to learn what your implicit bias is. You then come to terms with what that implicit bias is and hopefully uh, you're able to compartmentalize your implicit bias so that it does not have an effect on your operational dis decisions. Um, right. that's, that's the end of it. The, reality, the, the biggest challenge about it though is it, it forces you to come to terms with your implicit bias, but you have to be open to suggestion. If you're not open to suggestion, then it's just not going to work. You can, anybody can shut out any kind of learning opportunity. Um, sure. So we, we bring it to Durham region through our then deputy, Chris Fernandez, 
our chief Paul Martin says, this is great stuff. I want not, it, it's developed specifically for police officers, but mm -hmm. I want everybody, or Paul says, I want everybody to learn fear and partial policing. I want everybody to experience it because I want to change the culture mm -hmm. of the organization. So we mm -hmm. then become the only police force to not only have our officers trained, we have our civilians trained, we have our, uh, you know, you name it, anybody in the organization had to have the training, our auxiliaries had to have the training. And he was, what he was trying to accomplish to have this holistic approach to uh, our organization where everybody was on the same page in terms of inclusion and implicit bias. So that was right. a big thing for, for Paul. And so we, we, I started working on that. The biggest challenge I had though, is that people would um, inherently push back on the training because they were distracted by the American content, even though we were talking about human bias. Right. And that was right. huge. And we had to keep reminding them, we're not talking about Montana and Dallas and Missouri. We are talking about human bias. So when I talk about an officer stopping a 10-year-old black kid on his bike, mm -hmm. I'm talking about an officer stopping a 10-year-old black kid on his bike. It doesn't matter if it's in Ontario, Victoria, right. Nova Scotia, well, I, or Florida. Right? Yeah, and as a, yeah. human bias. And you as know? an educator, I fully can appreciate that. I mean, at the end of the day, we're looking for the transferable skills, right? That's what you're talking right. about. Not but the that was a, that's the, But the distraction of, of me seeing Montana would be ever-present. Mm -hmm. And sure. some of our members couldn't get past that. So we did try to make it as Canadian as possible. But that was ever present. Some people, I guess, because they they want to discredit it, mm -hmm. will focus on that. But here's the reality of, of fair and impartial policing or implicit bias training, is that you have to be open to the suggestion that you might be biased in order to champion the learning opportunity. Right. And right. the challenge we have is that good people won't always embrace that unsavory message. Because right. then it doesn't feel good inside. I'm not prejudiced, Keith. So why would I? I we should have biased training, and you should give it to them, whoever right. them is. But right. I don't need it because I'm a good person. And right. implicit bias training and anti-racial profile training is about helping good people be better. It's not right. about being critical of oneself. Um, right. Everybody has implicit bias. It's about learning what your implicit bias is. And quite mm -hmm. honestly, quite frankly, I'll never know what your implicit bias is. Because sure. this is an, an, an internal fact-finding endeavor that you're going along in this journey over the course of the day. And I'm hoping that over the course of probably next week, because it doesn't always mm -hmm. hit everybody at the same time. Some people, it'll hit you while you're in class. Some people, it's a week later where you get that aha moment. Um, right. But at some point, you get that aha moment where you're thinking, okay, I understand what he's saying now. I get it. Right. right? Yeah. And, and, well, I mean. But it requires the, you to do that some self assessment well reflection is a hard thing uh, it really is and uh, being introspective is difficult because you have to accept certain things you don't want to so you know i mean i i've always i've always loved i think i had a quote that used to hang in my office back before we went to this whole virtual world and i'm always on zoom uh but you know I, and i think it said it's un the unfortunate thing about the world is that the ignorant are full of opinions and the confident and the intelligent are, you know, full of self-doubt, and <laughs> you know, and that's true. I mean, I, I think it was Darwin who said that, who or said something along the lines of, you know, confidence uh, 
ignorance more often begets confidence than does knowledge. Uh, yeah. So it's a scary proposition and it's tough taking on tough subjects. So good on you for taking that on. Uh, we're coming close to the end. We're almost at the two hour mark. So uh, let's let's uh, give a quick, very short um, segment here on, tell me what it is that got you involved with Pride. I know you said you were a founding member on uh, Durham Pride Prom, uh, Prom and you were on the board of directors. So right. tell us a little bit about that. So when I first went into, probably about 15 years ago, I first went into the diversity unit and I, literally they said, here's your desk, here's your phone, here's your cell phone, and uh, here's your computer, go figure things out. I had no blueprint. I, had, I was the first, so I had nobody to follow. And I literally started going through the, the online directory looking for different uh, demographics and, and marginalized communities to reach out to. And uh, one of them obviously was the LGBTQ community in Durham region. And uh, what happened there was I started connecting with different organizations within Durham region. And what happened was the development of a, a proper prosperous relationship with our LGBT community. And I remember, you know, I, I was doing a speech once. Um, I had received an award for being a champion against uh, transphobia and homophobia. And I remember in my speech talking about us. And I and, and it clicked right then during my speech because I'm not gay. But I was talking about us in the context that I was. Sure. Because I had felt so comfortable and they had felt so comfortable with me that I, I could I I I had arrived. Right. You know, and and it was just a very uh it was uh it was a very uh, touching uh, experience. And what happened was that over the course of about six to 10 years, I started developing this relationship with our LGBTQ community. And I wanted to do more. So then I became a board of directors with Pride Durham and volunteering to right. do Pride events throughout the year. But at the same time, <clears throat> I had also joined um, uh, a newly formed group called Pride Prom. And the, 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 how Pride Prom got to, it came to being was that uh, we had uh, a young man that was went to Catholic school and he wanted to bring his uh, boyfriend to his prom. And right. he got suspended for doing that or wanting, right. just, he got suspended for wanting to do it. Yeah. And uh, so then we did a bunch of community members, myself included, came together and I said, we were going to give him a Pride Prom. Now right, he had right. since moved on, but we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen again. So then right. we developed this idea of let's have a pride prom. And, right. and that's where it started, where we had a prom for uh, LGBTQ youth who could be comfortable in their own skin in a safe environment. We would do that annually. Ironically, when we did surveys of the students, we would have somewhere around the neighborhood of about hundred students attend. 50% of the students that attend pride prom are straight identify as straight, which I, one, I did not see that data coming. Two, that made me even feel better about the initiative. Because what I don't want is a bunch of LGBTQ kids just in their bubble. Right. And so the idea or the notion that they are interacting with straight kids at a 50-50 ratio is even better. Because one, it right. shows that there's lots of allies out there. Two, it shows that they're not on an island by themselves. Right. So, uh, and, I've, and I've been with the committee ever since, planning annual Pride prom. Now the last two have been virtual because we're in a COVID world. The anticipation is next year we'll be in face to face again. Right. But it's near and dear to my heart because uh, I spent a lot of time in the community, being around marginalized kids, knowing that they have a disproportionate number of suicides, 
disproportionate number of kids live on the street that represent that demographic. And so I'm trying to do my part to ensure that these kids have a safe, long, and fruitful life. So that's, that's kind of how I got involved with that. Well, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate that the example you raised uh, is still examples. You've heard that example used elsewhere, and those lived experiences are uh, are real, and it's unfortunate they're still happening. Uh, but I think that that it's uh, you know it's incumbent on all of us to be um, to embrace all the elements of our society and understand that everybody's on a spectrum somewhere, and we all have a place in the human condition. Right, so uh, good on you. I, I think that that is uh, an important uh, thing and I'm glad you were part of it. Uh, equally though, you brought up another point and it's gonna be a conversation for another day. Um, I have had strong views about this whole idea of separating everybody. And I said, you know, it's funny, it's, uh, I, I heard it said on some stand-up talk show or something like that. It said, we got so woke, we went all the way back around to let's separate us all. And I said, that's where we started, you know? Uh, <laughs> So there, there's this point purpose. I mean, there's an important need for safe spaces with like-minded and the people that you know you can identify with, but yeah. that also needs to come out into the broader community because we can't all be islands on ourselves. We can't just be a group of black students and a group of brown students and a group of, it just doesn't work. At some point that safe space must exist, but allies and, and sort of community cohesion must be the goal. Right, one hundred percent, and it's very important. So it's you know when you have organizations, so a lot of police organizations have what we call ISNs or internal support networks, where you can have the the LGBT ISN, you can have the, the Black ISN, you can have whatever ISN you want internal support network, or they call some people call them EGRs or employment resource groups, and these are affinity groups where people with a commonality can come together. But if you have let's say the Black ISN. In Toronto police, there are several black ISN members that are white. Right, right. You know, to, membership is not just for those who are black, it's for those who can be allies, those who can be supporters, what right. happened, or maybe just have a friend, or maybe they're just somebody who just cares. Says, right. I don't represent that group, but I wanna be part of that group. Uh, well, right. we have to- All have social, to yeah, and all social progress at the end of the day has happened alongside other groups of people. And you can take that on any social context. We have always moved forward when we have included other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm going to bring us back. And I didn't. I should have ended on a happy note, but I want to <laughs> end on a, on a critical one and one that I think is really important. And so even though we've gone well over time, uh, we're, I'm going to do this anyways. Uh, you talked a little bit about implicit bias. And I know you've been a guest speaker in my own classrooms talking about implicit bias. Uh, I know it's a subject that's near and dear to your heart, not just because you see it as being necessary, but because you truly believe that that is a part of all our lived experiences. Yeah. So I have two questions that I'm gonna end with. My first one is, talk to me a little bit about, I know you've had experiences um, where you've had to experience both your own biases and other people's biases. You've come home from work, you're in a different context, you're worried about perception, you're thinking about all these things. How do you live through all of that? So talk to me a little bit about those experiences. You know, so you're, you've come home and you're thinking about sort of what other people perceive, how other people perceive you. Yeah, so in, for in, in policing in Ontario, uh, more often than not, our officers do not carry, uh, do not carry guns off duty. Um, and you have to have uh, usually special permission 
to uh, take your gun home. Um, sometimes you might be, it might be in a lockbox. More often than not, depending on the circumstance, you might actually be wearing the gun. Here's what I will tell you for all the times that I've actually had either had to wear my gun home or it was in what we call plain clothes, old clothes, whatever you want to call it, is mm -hmm. my biggest fear was always that if I was in the grocery store, I was always petrified that somebody would see my gun on my hip and call the police on me as a, as a black man with a gun. Mm. And, and, and I always thought to myself, do white guys worry about this? You know, mm. and uh, I don't think I ever had to, I don't think I was ever brave enough to ask because uh, I didn't know <laughs> how they'd interpret my question, but it was ever present in me that I was always concerned about that. I was always concerned that uh, I might be face down on the ground before I can show my badge to say, right. I'm not a criminal. And that is a context that uh, black officers have to face right. um, and, and, and you can't dismiss. And so that becomes part of your consciousness is you're always worried about somebody misinterpreting who you are. Right. 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 And, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm a black man first and a police officer second, because that's the first thing you see. Right. And, and we have to be real that people have perceptions based on those biases, which previously mm -hmm. circle the fair and impartial policing. So, uh, but that's the reality of it is that those are the experiences. Uh, some people will say that's unfortunate and I would agree that is unfortunate, but it is also right. reality. Right? right, is that I have to be extra vigilant about who I am and how I conduct myself, particularly when I am out of uh, uniform. That said, I have had people call the police on me when I was in uniform because they didn't notice the uniform. If you can right. imagine that experience. Yeah. Right? So at yeah. least right now, we started the conversation with Keith Richards in plain clothes, but somebody might see the butt of a gun. Imagine Keith Richards in full uniform, right. police of, on the chest, Durham Regional Police on the shoulder, Mark Cruiser on the street, and they're still mistaking me for an assailant. Right. Because they've seen <laughs> this face and they've yeah. missed everything else. And now if I guarantee my audience is saying, is that even possible? Right. I'm here to tell you, Neil, it is possible because I've lived it. Right. I, 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 you know, in a way, I wish I had never heard you tell this story before. Yeah. Uh, and because we're friends, I've heard it. And I think yeah. the shock value on my face does not represent sort of my first reaction. But uh, no, I, I can appreciate where you're coming from. And that's a difficult place to be because yeah. that's hard to rationalize yourself. Right. Yes. Um, it, it must be hard to go. How do you miss this? Yes. And the car and the, you know, yeah, yeah. It, yeah and it, the it and the walkie talkie, right? Yeah. And all those things yeah. that he, the person called in about me. How do you right. realize you call in on a suspect and you say he has a flashlight and walkie talkie? What criminal watching with a flashlight and walkie talkie, yet you don't see police on the chest, police on the back, police on the shoulders, cruiser on the street? So it does happen. And so right. what that then does is reminds me that no matter how much of a uniform I am wearing, when I'm in the community, there's always the potential to be part of that out group that will be mistaken for an assailant because the mm. one thing he did not get wrong was that I was black. Mm. So how does this, experience. So, that, so now I have to ask because you're forcing me to follow up questions. <laughs> so, so you have this legitimate concern and I can understand what you're saying. 
But part of that concern, it seems like there's something missing in this conversation because it would be your fellow workmates responding to that call. Yes. So, and if you went face down before you could produce your badge, it would be your fellow cops that would be doing that. So talk about this, there's a, there's a disconnect here. For, say more, you know, sort of connect so, the dots. Uh, I was, because, so in that, particular, in that particular event, I was between two houses. My fear was that either, so canine was also on the call. The dog, my fear was that the dog might not recognize I'm an officer. Right. My other fear was that if I, if I stay right where I am right now, that they may see an assailant with a gun, not realize it is an officer in uniform with a gun. Because there's nothing, this, this, at this point in my career, we have not had bias training. Right. So the guy that calls it in has the same training as the cops, which is no training. So there is nothing to suggest that what he missed, they wouldn't miss as well. Because they might just see a black man with a gun and, and they might see the cruiser, but they might still miss the same cues that he missed that led me to this event in the first place. And so I got on the air right away to start warning people because I was petrified that I might actually end up in a shootout with my own people. Wow, that's surreal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's surreal. Yeah, absolutely. That's the stuff they make movies about. Not the good cops. Yeah, not not the good cop stuff you have done. They don't make yeah. movies about that. But you know, yeah. this they would have. Uh, well, Serpico is a whole different conversation. <laughs> and 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 you and you know, we didn't fully investigate some of those circumstances today. That's all right. Uh, I'm gonna probably get you on that one because you introduced it at another point. No problem. Um, hey, listen, let's uh, let's wrap this up on uh, a positive note. I. Uh, I think a big part of success in life in general is um, should be attributed to your family. I think for all of us. Now that's my personal bias. It's the rock at the end of the day upon which we build all of these things. It's the reason we do all of these things. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of your family in your life, taking you through a long career. That is not easy. Shift work is not easy. It puts a lot of demands on your marriage, on your parenting, on your life. Talk about the importance of family and staying grounded and connected to family and community outside of policing, because that was a part of that mental health conversation we were having earlier, right? right? So you, you, the, 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 you have to have a life outside of policing. Um, that's the last thing you want to do is to have a life where you're only surrounded by officers. You want to have a life outside of policing. It doesn't mean that the two worlds can't come together, but if, that, if policing is your sole life, you're going to have challenges throughout your, 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 your life. Uh, you know, my, my, my wife, great person. She is uh, a grounded person. She is uh, uh, frontline uh, in the medical field. She's a nurse. And so there is a lot of like-minded uh, career respect between the two of us. Um, but she also understands the shift work because she does it as well. And, and I think that's important is when you have your partner, whomever your partner is, whether you have that same level of respect for one another's careers. Uh, and because we both lived that type of thing where there is a certain amount of risk to our environment, it allows us to then have that, that relationship where we can have that mutual respect for it. Uh, but you also have to make time for your family 
right? I always tell people all the time, you're never going to find time in life. You have to make the time. And so my objective as I went through my career was always to make sure that I had made the time for my girls, made the time for my wife, made the time for my family, made the time for my friends, uh, right. because that's important. It keeps you emotionally grounded. Operation, it doesn't change anything, but emotionally, it gives you an escape from that day-to-day -day rigors of being an officer. And as we've said earlier in, in the interview, that doesn't end when you get in your vehicle and you're walking out of that division or you're, you're getting in your car and you're driving down the street, you're still gonna be hyper vigilant to your environment. So it's right. very important that you, when you get inside your four walls, you decompress and make that time for your family. And, and my experiences with my family have been excellent. Uh, my kids have grown up around policing. That's, that's what they know. Uh, right. They understand the risks as well. Everybody understands the risks. But they uh, they 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 loved having a, a father as as a, as a role model in that in that that that, that experience. So uh, always make the priority for your family uh, because when you have those, when you have those hard days, that's who you want to lean on, right? You technically don't want to lean on the officers. People think, oh, you should lean on the officers because then you can have talks and they'll understand it. Yeah, operation they will understand it. Sure. But emotionally, it's your the people that you're your emotional support that'll get you through that night when you're trying to go to sleep, right? right? That's where the support truly comes into play. And your officer friends won't be there when your pillow hits, your head hits the pillow. So you always want to make sure that you're surrounded with people that can give you that emotional support. And so I feel like that's guarded me my the most success. And I'm not right. talking about monetary success. Yep. Emotional success, right? Sure. And I mean, I don't, I don't think we give enough credit to the families of law enforcement that have to do a lot of heavy lifting behind the scenes so that you can go out and do what you do. Absolutely. I think that's a, you know. Um, what final advice would you offer my students? So if I was going, if you were going to end on a piece of advice, what would you say to my students uh, as they continue on their journey? So my, my, my uh, here, the, the one piece of advice that I will give them is to make sure that you're joining the police for the right reasons. If you're joining it because you watch CSI or you're trying to join it because you want to be the next canine officer or you're joining it because you want to be on SWAT, then you're joining it for the wrong reasons. And, and, and all likelihood, at some point in the process, you're going to be unsuccessful because you're going to weed you out if you're not genuine in your interest. Make sure you're joining because you want to do that core job, which is help the community, right? If you're joining for any other reason, I would say you should look for some other endeavors because you just the likelihood of success wanes as you get uh, starry-eyed over things that you've seen in the media or on TV. So just make sure that you're joining for the right reasons. And the right reason should be to do right by the community. And if that is the position that you're taking, then you will garner that success. That's well, th Sergeant Keith Richards, thank you for sharing your journey with us and unpacking. And I know we left a lot of table, a uh, lot of topics on the table yeah. uh, because there's, there's so much to say and you and I just talk forever. So uh, I thank you for your candor. It's been real fun. It's been a lot of fun. It hasn't felt like work yeah. at all. This My has been pleasure. a great conversation. Thank you so much. I wish you all the very best in your retirement. And I hope uh, you can, you'll come back and uh, have another chat with us sometime. I'd love to. All right, Keith, have a great one. Happy retirement. Thank you.